Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Agnès Marqueyou, is the director of the United Nations Mine Action Service. This is the UN agency that helps clear minefields, diffuse IEDs, and clean up unexploded ordnance around the world. It is the UN's Hurt Locker. I saw Agnès give an acceptance speech at the Global Leadership Awards, which is an event hosted by the United Nations Foundation, and the way in which she both described the work of Unmass and her own long experience in the UN system compelled me to reach out to her for an interview, and you will not be disappointed. This is a great conversation. We discuss the problems of landmines and unexploded ordnance around the world, the hard work of UNMASS, and how funding shortages is preventing her agency from being maximally effective in places like Iraq, where UNMASS has received high praise for diffusing a bomb-laden bridge in Fallujah, which in turn allowed aid to enter following ISIS's defeat there. Agnes has had a long career in the UN, and I think younger professionals who listen to this show will find some inspiration in how Agnes was able to make a very big policy impact as a relatively junior UN staffer working on the Convention on the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The story of how that convention was passed, as Agnes notes, will be fascinating to many of the international relations nerds who listen to this show. Great stuff, really fun and interesting and lively conversation with a bureaucratic entrepreneur in the UN system. We kick off with a brief discussion about the award she recently received and how it might impact her work going forward. Before we go on to the interview, a quick request for regular listeners of the show. Could you please leave a review on iTunes of Global Dispatch's podcast? It's a really good way of helping to increase the visibility of the podcast among people who are searching for foreign policy podcasts on iTunes. It would help grow the audience. Also, please recommend the podcast to your friends and colleagues posted on social media. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. If there's anything on your mind, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, I do love hearing from you. But please do uh, recommend the show to your friends and colleagues, fellow students, family, anyone who who loves a, a good nerdy podcast about foreign affairs. All right, now here is my conversation with Agnes Marqueyou. Director of the United Nations Mine Action Service. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It's very heartwarming uh, for all my colleagues to see that the work they do is recognized. We tend to be um, operating uh, mostly at field level in the grant secretariat system. Here we are not always understood, or UNMAS is a is a specialized agency, but it's seen as a I would say a group of techies taking minds out of the ground, and um, we we feel that uh, the issue we handle. Uh, as well as the entity we work for, are not always known uh, or understood. So that has definitely improved uh, the visibility of UNMAS and improved it in a meaningful way. I mean, it was it's not a, a, a PR uh, stunt. It, it was a recognition by a very uh, respected organization uh, um, uh, outside the UN of the work we have done. And you do not get that award uh, through lobbying. Mm -hmm. um, so this was really, really great for everybody at HQ and also in the field to see that, well, somebody knows we exist and is recognizing us for the quality of the work we do. So that was good. For me personally, uh, it's it's the best recognition I, I have ever had in my career. Uh, this one is, again, it's, uh, it's transparent, it's honest, it is, uh, it is not biased, and it's about my leadership. And when you are the head of, a, when you're the head of an organization, an agency, um, you know, from time to time, you're happy when you see that what you do and what you spend so much time and energy doing is, is recognized as good job. Um, so this this was valuable. Externally, I mean, again, the mission of UNMAS is way bigger than UNMAS, way bigger than uh, uh, you know the sum of all the staff combined. It's it's making sure that the activity itself, my action, um, is known. Uh, I was quite shocked when I joined UNMAS five years ago. Um, uh, to see that since um, late Lady Di, Princess Diana uh, had passed away, um, actually people were not really thinking uh, that there were things killing people hmm. across across the world. Um, mine action meant for too many people, for the majority of the people, it meant landmines. Landmines meant an issue of the past, you know, the Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, the, the old wars that a lot of millennials don't even know about. And it was gone. And it is so not true. It is so not the reality. I mean, we're still, you're still people. digging up uh, unexploded ordnance from, you know, the, the yes. Vietnam War in Laos, right? I agree. I agree. Yeah. It, 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 these things don't die. People die. These things last forever. I mean, if, uh, if you just take two seconds to, to, to think of Europe today, um, in England, in Belgium, in Germany, in France, my own country, 
um, you know, every time we will dig to build a highway, we dig the ground to build the Olympic Stadium in London, we're going to find unexploded ordnance. So that goes on forever. Uh, but most importantly, in the context of the work of the UN in conflict and post-conflict environments, um, uh, it's not so much about landmines only, it's about the new legacies of war. The conflicts have increased in, in intensity, mm-hmm. in duration, in technologies, uh, and, uh, and these things don't always work as designed. They don't always explode on impact, and they tend to kill people who are displaced, poor, uh, trying to collect scrap metal, now the weaponry itself has evolved. We well, in let, the mid nineties. Well, let, let me let me actually ask you a, a, about a, a modern yeah. example that you cited in your yeah. uh, speech, which was the diffusing of IEDs planted yeah. on a bridge in Fallujah. Can you just sort yeah. of walk me through that process and and how Unmass uh, sort of helped helped facilitate that and, and what that looked like? Uh, sort of in in detail, so people can understand the work that your organization yeah. does. Well, it's actually a very good example. I thank you for this. Um, the way it worked was for the first humanitarian team of the UN going to Fallujah to integrate in their team a member of the UNMAS team, an expert. Mm-hmm. So we had we had our people in the UN team. So like with the World Food Program, with UNDP, groups that are going into... It was was UNHCR, OCHA, uh, going back to Fallujah, and uh, just to, you know, right after the fall of Fallujah. And actually, that day, I'm told, uh, by the the head uh, humanitarian coordinator in, uh, in Iraq, Liz Grande, um, uh, she told me that that day Unmas had actually saved the lives of the team because they spotted what the others had not spotted, and um, and it was IEDs. They, like, when Daesh left Fallujah, uh, they made sure that they had booby trapped and uh, and 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 left behind, um, you know, these devices that would kill people returning to Fallujah to their homes. And actually, the first time was just that the unmasked people saw it. Um, uh, Then the assessment takes place, and then the treatment, as if I may, the treatment of the of the IEDs um, is uh, is is put underway. And this is how we we found these uh, all these IEDs planted around and under the bridge. Hmm. Now, what it it calls for? Yeah. No, no. Go ahead. It calls for. you know, very, very uh, sharp technical skills. Uh, sometimes UNMAS uh, is able to diffuse it. Uh, in some context, we are working with uh, other teams that we hire because we are not enough people and there is no need for UNMAS to be big. We can hire operators to work with us according to our own ways of working. And sometimes when it's too, too complicated, uh, we mark it, we fence it off, we make sure that people don't get close, and we, 
we leave it until such time when we find a solution or until such time when the mechanisms deteriorate. It depends on the assessment by the experts, by my experts, of what it's about. And so in the case of that bridge in Fallujah, it was your team's... A mix of things. A mix of things, yeah, yeah, to to defuse all those bombs. Yeah, Yeah. yes. Um, Yeah. And and we had an impl- we had a partner with us, uh, you know. At uh, some of it was done by my own colleagues, and some of it was done uh, by a team under our um, supervision. And and that's fairly typical of how you work, right? In some some cases, unmasked staff directly are doing the defusing yeah. of bombs and mines. In other cases, yeah. they're working closely yeah. with country partners, governments, or NGOs on the ground. Right. Right. Yes, absolutely. It's just that we need, if we want the, if we want the process to move fast, we need many, many teams. This is why uh, you have heard me say that uh, the contamination by explosive hazards, landmines, uh, explosive remnants of war, um, whatever, cluster munitions, this is not an incurable disease. The more, the more funding is available, the more teams are deployed, uh, the more land, the, the, the bigger the land uh, uh, we, can, we can release. So that's, is, that's that, is it really just like a, a function of, of funding? If there is more funding than, yeah. say, more unexploded ordnance, and I know you used, I used the example of, of Laos earlier, but like more yeah. unexploded ordnance there could be cleared, and it, it really is that direct uh, relationship? The, yeah, yeah. And it's not like there are many that. more, you know, uh, you know, bombs being dropped in, in Laos these days. So presumably, with the right amount of funding, you could just get rid of all of the unexploded organs yep. in, in a, a with the with the time. funding. With the funding, you deploy teams. With the funding, you train new teams, new national capacities. Because ultimately, uh, I would say the end game for the UN is not to stay in a country forever. Today, in New York or in London or in or in Brussels. Uh, when there is something suspicious or something that blows up, you're not calling outsiders. You have your own bomb squad. You have your own capacity. You have your own military capacity. That's what uh, my vision is of uh, uh, the exit strategy for the UN in the field of mine action. The, the measure of success for us is, um, you know, how how well have we been able to build a national capacity. It's sometimes it's very complex, but we have good success stories. If you take the, 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 the police of Mogadishu in Somalia, that's a concrete example. We, uh, we unmask with, with partners, of course, but we actually built the capacity of the uh, Somali police um, to create their own bomb, I would say, bomb team, bomb squad capacity. So they started learning about it. They started doing it with mentoring. We had mentors deployed with them when they felt they could, you know, start doing it themselves. And uh, and today we don't even deploy mentors. The Somali police in Mogadishu is handling their own problems. And God knows if, if they have many, many problems uh, of car bombs, suicide attacks, of all sorts. But they know how to do it. And to me, this is really a model of what needs to be done. In, uh, in Afghanistan, in the heydays when, uh, when the, the international community was funding uh, mine action in Afghanistan at its fullest, 
we had actually worked out a business plan with the Afghans that uh, Afghanistan could be really cleared clean in in six years. I mean, at that time, we were thinking that it could have been done in 2018-19, right, hmm. instead of 2023. Problem is uh, that all of a sudden, the you know, the priorities in the world changed and the geopolitics and the, and the relationship with Afghanistan and all of that impacted on the on the funding that the international community was giving to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was equipped good. I mean, we were working with them. They were completely able to handle their own problem with a very minimal residual presence of en masse, two, three staff. Uh, the thing is, when money goes down, you have two things. One, the business plan is derailed for lack of resources, sufficient resources. Uh, and two, uh, most um, or equally importantly for me, we had at one point 18,000 Afghan deminers, well-trained, disciplined, learning the, the, knowing the tools of the trade and, and working it. But as funding reduced, uh, we are now down to, hmm. I don't know, 5,000, 6,000. It means that basically you have 10,000 young men with explosive set skills um, on the market looking for a job. That's never good. Uh, I can't imagine that, <laughs> so, yes, end, that, money, that ends well. So, yeah. I mean, where, are the funding sources um, through voluntary contributions, mostly from member states? Yes. And that, okay, and so it's and, and so funding is just uh, dependent on sort of the willingness and the um, political will, I suppose, and, and ability of donors to actually want to pay for this. Yes. Yes. It's it's a prioritization. This is why coming back to your initial question. It is so important for us to get mine action well understood at, at government level. Uh, this morning in the Security Council, the special representative of the Secretary General for Iraq, Jan Kubish, said, demining is an essential precursor to every activity linked to re stabilization, reconstruction, humanitarian assistance. He said that in the council this morning. And, and then he asked the members of the council to support en masse, uh, not because, you know, operators cannot do it bilaterally and you always have to come back to the UN. But the added value of en masse is that we coordinate the work of the others. We make sure that you don't have three organizations, the miners, coming to the same village at the same time. We do the prioritization together. We do the planning together. People we fund or we don't fund. People working on a UN contract or not. We, we make sure that the, the greater coherence of our action improves the impact of our action. Well, we exchange information. So this is what really was at stake in the council this morning for Iraq. Well, well let me ask then, do you have the funding you need uh, for Iraq? No. We are, we, um, no. Uh, we need $250 million for, um, for Iraq. Um, uh, it was expensive. It, it, it is expensive. We, we needed funding for Ramadi, Fallujah, Mosul. We were uh, always in the, amongst the first ones to deploy and organize the work. The funding was ad hoc. 
which uh, which does not uh, support, I would say, a strong management of resources. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to plan ahead of time when you have predictable funding. Um, and uh, today, unfortunately, we see that funding separate from the funding for humanitarian appeals or the funding for the uh, reconstruction, stabilization, reconstruction appeal. Oh, so uh, it's it's a separate, I, so this is a little like wonky and goes it, into like nerdy UN budget stuff. But basically you're let's saying, yeah, yeah, that, that funding yeah, for your organization. Way, yeah. If the 250 that, uh, that my humanitarian colleagues and development colleagues are asking me to find, to enable them to do the work, if that funding were considered ab initio at the beginning, uh, part of the rest, mm-hmm. in my view, it would go faster. So but, 250 you know, million is what you are missing or is that the, do you have any of that uh, yet? No, we, we, uh, that's the well, gap. we have a pledge of 10 million right now, well, but not, the rest we, yeah. we, we don't have this, this still needs to come. And that 250 is not, uh, limited to people taking the IEDs out. It is also to build an Iraqi capacity, technical capacity, an Iraqi administrative capacity, because we do that too. Uh, you know, when, when you import equipment and, and, and when you, you know, when you have, uh, uh, partners coming to your country, you need to accredit them. You need to give them the right visas. For that, you need a bureaucratic capacity. That's something that we have done with, uh, uh, a great deal of success in Colombia with the government of Colombia. They are a great partner. We have nine of my staff actually uh, embedded in the national structure for mine action. And, um, and well, Colombia is a great country and, uh, uh, you know, very active. And, and it's, it's a partnership that is working very well. And it's something that I'm working on uh, to do in Iraq with the government also. Just to... You know, these are countries that are, um, that even now are still fighting a war, uh, or for others, they are just recovering from a, a deadly conflict. And we, we need to help them back on track and give them, you know, the right training, the right support, the right assistance so that they, they, they can handle their own business one day by themselves. Yeah. So in, in your speech, you um, spoke uh, fairly passionately about your um, dedication to the UN, your career with the UN. And I'd yeah. love to learn a little bit more about how you got involved in this line of work. So uh, I obviously take it you're you are French. Uh, what, uh, where were you born? What were like the circumstances in which you were born? And um, like, how did you get uh, involved into, the, into these issues? Uh, you will you will let's, allow let's me not back. to expand on the the circumstances in which I was born. I uh, I I would I would just say that um, I I uh, I was always interested uh, in international affairs. Um, Where did that and, interest come uh, from? To, do you think? Well, I'm coming from a family where um, the religion was that at lunch and at dinner we would stop talking to listen to the news. And then my parents would comment on the news. So we we were kids, you know, always um, sharing meals with our parents and therefore listening to the conversations. And as we grew up, we started taking, you know, taking part in the conversations. And we, it, it's really what we what we grew up with. I what mean, were they, some of the news stories we, that resonate with you from that time? 
Um, oh, I was, I was, uh, I was obviously uh, really young, but I, uh, I, I still remember in Burgundy, France, my mom uh, crying when she heard about the um, the assassination of President Kennedy. It's the kind of thing that stays with you. Mm-hmm. I remember my mom was crying. That's all. So that this is what shocks a kid when you when you you know when you're little. And we're speaking and, on the anniversary and, of that of that assassination, actually. Oh, okay. It's uh, yeah. I mean that that I remember. I remember the. Uh, I mean there are names that come, came back to me during my career, and I was thinking, oh, but. You know, I remember these names. I mean, people were talking about this—the name of, you know, um, heads of states or prime ministers, or, or you know, the end of Vietnam, or, or, um, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the uh, I would say riots or developments in Santo Domingo. I mean, Santo Domingo is something that sounded exotic, and that when you're a kid, it stays with you. And I always heard things like this. We, we, we were. My my father had uh, had fought the uh, in the Second World War, and um, uh, and I think that uh, I I I got privileged to be raised in a family that was looking so much at Europe. I mean the the foundation of Europe, uh, Jean Monnet, Robert Schuman. I mean these are things that were obviously very, very important in my family. So we were internationals already, although we were living in Burgundy. And uh, so the European ideals, it's its something that, you know, I grew up thinking that it was the way to end wars. Although in those days, I would not have been able to formulate it this way. But that we grew up with. We we grew up in, uh, in, in, um, in you know, with... Yeah, a link to the rest of the world, always. So international was uh, was part of our um, DNA, and uh, security matters. It just uh, happened that at one point, when I was a junior at university, you had this big debate about the deployment of the American Pershing missiles in Germany, West Germany, in those days. Mm-hmm. There was a big debate, and at one point, Mitterrand. Uh, President Mitterrand went to Germany and and made a statement in the in the Parliament, which was uh, uh, seen as uh, maybe the French uh, overstepping the boundaries of the German sovereignty. And and we had debate at home. You know, the missiles. The, was it good? Was it not good? Nuclear deterrence. Was it good? Not good. So security issues and and international issues came together. And, um, you know, I pursued my interest in uh, through education. And uh, well, later how, on, yeah, tell me. Yeah, well, well how did you get uh, involved in, in the United Nations in particular? <laughs> the first time was as a tourist. <laughs> I, uh, I, I came to the U.S. I had saved a little bit of money as a student, and I, I wanted to come to the U.S., and I came to New York. And uh, on my last day, I visited the United Nations. I ended the tour, the tourist guide tour, uh, in the basement in the, in the uh, U.N. bookshop. And they had uh, the charter, and they had the, um, the little blue book, of the mission, <laughs> you know, the diplomatic blue book. Yeah. And I looked at that and it was magic to me. And that's where I wanted to be. 
Wow. So, so the, the no, tour, the that's, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. I've, I've heard, had a lot yeah. of these conversations and never once was it the tour of the UN that was the inspiring moment. Yeah, it was that's real. Fascinating. I mean, we had heard a lot of things. We were downstairs and, and, uh, you know, I, I was touching these documents and, uh, and yeah, so I took this blue book and um, decided to call somebody at the French mission. <laughs> and I must say, yeah, I did. I did. I mean, uh, these were, I remember these were um, uh, the, the, the public phones that you would, you would use with a quarter, which I didn't have. And somebody gave me and I called the French mission. And this young French diplomat was nice enough to meet me. And and basically told me, oh no, but you know, coming to the UN is is difficult. So I worked. I uh, I you know I studied more, and I always had that. To me, it was a superimposition of what what the world was. Really, this this house is still drawing a lot of emotions for me, as you you saw the other night. Mm-hmm. And also being in New York, because New York is is New York. It's magical. This is my home, really. So it's, uh, you know, I had the best of all worlds. And, and so how did you land that, that first uh, position, that first job at the UN? Well, I thought it was a complicated process because the, the, um, the recruitment had just been frozen. The, the United States um, under President Reagan had um, stopped paying their, their dues and were, uh, they were asking for reform and better management. So Plus I, I started... <laughs> Please, I change. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. And the house was different. I mean, uh, it was as if, if I remember correctly, Sam Nunn, uh, Democrat Sam yes. Nunn was. Who has uh, been a guest on this was, podcast, in fact. He's, yeah. I've, I've interviewed him for this show, Sam Nunn. All right. Yeah. Did you see? Yeah, yeah. Sam Nunn, I remember the name. So, anyway, uh, it was, it was uh, quite, um, quite difficult. But then, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the NC came up and. Uh, and then the results of the NCE took forever, forever. I uh, started as a researcher for the for UNIDIA in Geneva. Um, uh, so you know all the contacts and the and the uh, the networking I had been doing to find a way of entering this house paid off with a researcher contract at UNIDIA, the what? UN Institute for Disarmament Research. Okay, so that, that was that was your first entry point into the security world. Yeah, okay. and my first entry point was the boss at UNIDIA, the big boss, understood that I wanted to see the UN in New York, so he sent me on mission to the, uh, to the Department for Disarmament Affairs for two weeks mm-hmm. um, uh, and to see the General Assembly. And it was very intimidating, I did not understand much, <laughs> but the, what I knew was this is what I wanted to do. The rest I would say, and I can share with everybody here, is that when you're young and you know your topic and, you, and you're working hard, that's all I ever did, um, you become valuable. And uh, I tend to tell my, my younger colleagues today that uh, in those days, uh, I was surrounded by all these old bureaucrats. I don't know, they may have been 40 years old in those days, but they looked old to me. And I felt that, uh, you know, they didn't have the passion I had. So I was basically doing everything that I could lay my hand on. And I became valuable. And I knew things. And I shared things. And, um, and one day came when the, the recruitment situation uh, improved. 
And um, this is how I could be regularized on a real post. Mm -hmm. And um, and the rest is history. I had my foot in the in this majestic world, and, and I never lost my passion. And and you've steadily moved up the bureaucracy for yeah, for the last you know twenty twenty five years, right? Thirty. Thirty oh, years. Yeah. Thirty years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, in I, I guess in the the, the course uh, as as your sort of career developed, I know you spent a lot of time yeah. working in disarmament affairs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Could on you... disarmament issues and in disarmament affairs, you know, whether in DDA in those days, it was a big department when I joined or um, or peripherally. I worked for the um, Organization for Chemical Weapons. I was in UNSCOM Chemical Weapons in Iraq. Yeah, so, okay, it's, so... I, I was always gravitating around, you know, weaponry, arms control, proliferation issues. Do, yeah. do, well, have you thought about like why it was those kind of hard security questions around weaponry that that seemed to animate you? Oh, it's because my, you know by education this was my forte. Mm -hmm. It was my strength. I knew that I have a pretty solid knowledge. I mean, I would say academic knowledge of things. Uh, I'm a lawyer by education, political scientist. I know how to read a text. I know how to read a treaty. I've contributed to the elaboration of the Chemical Weapon Convention. Um, so this is what I knew. I knew about European security issues. I knew about the position of the UN, the non-aligned countries. I studied that. Mm. I wrote about that. So, so you, facto, you, it mm -hmm. was, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it became my, my area of comfort. So, so you were working uh, for the conference on disarmament, or when the yeah. chemical weapons treaty was was negotiated. Is that right? Yes, yes, I was in Geneva. Can you yeah, talk a, a little bit about days, that process yeah. and, and your involvement in that and, and maybe use that as an entry point to kind of talk a little bit about how the Conference on Disarmament works and how the, the, the Chemical Weapons Convention came to be, which you seem to have a hand in, in helping to, to bring to life. It, it was a, a fascinating process because it's, uh, it's an issue that had been stuck uh, during the Cold War uh, years, it was stuck forever. In in uh, those days, and uh, I feel that I'm a dinosaur now, but in those days, um, uh, the word verification was a no-go. And you could not have a treaty without verification, but verification for the, um, uh, for the Warsaw Pact, don't forget it was NATO Warsaw Pact, uh, for the Warsaw Pact and the, the USSR in particular meant intrusion. Mm -hmm. There was no like they trust. didn't want international people going in there to poke around yeah, their, their files, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, and I would say that um, you know, from a from an outsider's and a junior point of view, um, I felt that it was you know an easy go from the other side to push for verification and to say, you see, we are ready for a treaty. Uh, we are ready for a treaty, but the other side does not want any verification. Therefore, we cannot make any progress. And um, all of a sudden, with the evolution of the world and the, and, and the, the uh, uh, I would say, combination of uh, the Helsinki process, the, the detente, right? And uh, that was followed by the, by the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the politics change, and all of a sudden, the uh, the countries uh, of the Warsaw Pact, led by the USSR, 
no longer had a problem with verification. It was a little bit like a poker game, in my view. When they said, all right, you want verification, let's go for it. Oops, uh, was the other side ready? And, and that generated a great deal of momentum. All of a sudden, um, you had, uh, these were the years where uh, the U.S. and, uh, and USSR slash Russia started discussing arms control. Arms control was real. And it was all, um, you know, it was, a, it was a tool to improve security, but it was also a great instrument for dialogue. These were the years uh, of confidence-building measures, CSBMs, confidence and security building measures. And I'm, uh, I, I still have that in me, uh, believing that, you know, you need to talk about something, sit at a table. At the beginning, the talks may not be in earnest, but at one point, uh, the partnership gets built and you get somewhere. And this is how this chemical weapon convention started uh, evolving. Mind you, um, uh, the trigger point was, Sounds like a, a lecture in international relations. No, this is this but is fascinating. I, I no, I think I think the 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 people who listen to the show will will be fascinated by this because I, I know I am that that point about verification is not something I had really realized, but before this conversation. So keep going. Verification and lecture on. Yeah. Well, in in the in the meantime, in uh, 1988, uh, there was a, a dramatic uh, event in the world. It was the during the Iran. Iraq war, there was a chemical attack against the Kurds, and it was the Halabja massacre. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was, it was summer 88. Uh, the Security Council met. Everybody was pretty much on vacation. I was the junior one. I was around. So I looked at, um, you know, what was going on. And the uh, Security Council demanded uh, an investigation in the allegations of use of chemical weapons in the Halabja massacre. Uh, Javier de Cuellar was the secretary general at that time uh, and, you know, used his system to work on this issue. I was the junior one. I was not on vacation. I was here. I got involved in that issue. This is how I started working on chemical weapons issues, allegations of use. What are the processes, the procedures? What do we have at the UN as tools to make it happen? And I went from the theory to the charter to uh, actually the politics and the responsibilities of the Secretary General and, uh, and realized that really we, we didn't have an instrument. We didn't have anything um, to protect the world from uh, the use of chemical weapons again. We had an old Geneva Protocol from 1925, which obviously had lost its credibility when chemical weapons were used. And there had been a few other allegations before that. Unbeknownst to me, September 88, President Mitterrand comes to the General Assembly. I'm going just to listen to the French president. And he announces that the French are taking the initiative of convening a a big international conference in Paris in January 89 on the issue of chemical weapons. It was the world had to react. Mitterrand was from the old generation. And the specter of the use of chemical weapons had come back to reality. And the world had to do something. And you know what? I was the little junior one who had worked during that summer on allegations of use. I was French. It was convenient for everybody to have me, 
involved in that process. And that's how I was thrown in the negotiations on chemical weapons. With Secretary General de Quillier, my Undersecretary General at that time was Yasushi Akashi, a great boss, I have to say for me, uh, Akashi from Japan. And uh, we all prepared for the January 89 conference. That led to uh, me being assigned without asking for my opinion. I was assigned to Geneva. I was sent to Geneva from one day to another to work on the conference on disarmament on chemical weapons because at the UN in the Secretariat, you know, I was the one. And I, I worked on this convention for three years, uh, getting acquainted with uh, what sounded like very complex scientific issues. Uh, Did you actually... When, can, can you yeah, look at, at can you look right now back at the text of the chemical weapons convention and, and point to yeah. text that you, that you personally wrote and, and drafted? Yeah, the article on settlement of disputes. This one I did with uh, my chairman was Walter Krutsch from uh, the from East Germany, and I mean, uh, and he and I he was uh, he was an elderly man lawyer by background. And he and I developed a passion for this, uh, for this, for this article. It's a short one on the settlement of disputes, but it's, uh, yeah, that that was my direct contribution. Besides being the secretary of a few working groups here but that's, and there, that, that's yeah. that's a pretty cool legacy to be able to point to. I mean, that 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 will last, and and <laughs> and it's relevant as ever today, unfortunately. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. It is. It's, uh, but it shows that when you're a P three. You can do a lot of things. I did a lot of things as a P3. I and think a P3, it is a P3 uh, refers to the level in the bureaucracy that you're at, which is like a couple rungs yes. down from like assistant secretary. Right. No, no. A P3 is a really P3. junior. Junior. Okay. A P3 uh, is a junior yeah, level yeah. A P3, of the UN. Okay. A P3 is something like five years of seniority with the UN. And yeah, something go. like this. Yeah. So, so, but, so uh, yeah, no, go, go ahead. <laughs> No, I, I'm, I'm saying this is when you really have a space to do a lot of things because, I mean, I always felt that at the United Nations, once you know the rules, you have to know the rules, but the rules are not constraining you. Once you know the rules, then you can do, um, you know, what you feel is the right thing to do because you, yeah, that, you, you know your lines. And within that space, we have an enormous amount of space, actually. I, I, at, at any level in my career, I've always done a lot of things that were not necessarily written in my job description, but which I felt, and, and my supervisors, obviously, felt were useful. But so, I, so, I, I really point that out to everybody around me. So now, as, as head of UNMAS, how are you creating that kind of bureaucratic space where it doesn't exist? Oh, I have it. I'm the CEO of a small company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's again, it's, you understand what your mandate is, what the end game is. You know the lines that, uh, uh, you know the don'ts. There are very strong don'ts. And what are some of the within... don'ts for you as, as, as an unmasked head? Like what, what are some of the things that you, the, the political lines that you know you can't cross? Um, I mean, one thing is that political lines we don't cross. Um, I, in, 
Unmas is a, is a hybrid agency. We do, we support with the same skill set, the same knowledge of a, about the political, the doctrinal, the diplomatic, and the technical work on explosive hazards. Uh, we go from um, advocating universalization of treaties. We want countries to, to join treaties. We want them to understand their legal obligations, what they have to do when they are a party to the anti-personal landmine convention, for instance, in practical terms. We want governments to remember that they need frameworks for, um, to, to provide assistance to victims. We want the victims of explosive hazards um, uh, to be recognized uh, as having specific needs and requirements, and we work on that. This is policy. This is capacity building of the countries. We do uh, risk education, vast campaigns of risk education, all of that in partnerships with those who are relevant and equipped. And, and this is the, the first tool to prevent people from dying uh, from contamination of, of explosives. And we do the demining that people understand. Well, when we do all of this, that's our toolbox. That can help the peacekeepers. So in that case, we have a peacekeeping hat. We are integrating in the peacekeeping operation. We make sure that the troop-contributing countries that are protecting the UN in Mali, in, 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 in the DRC, uh, in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that they know the rules of the game, that they have the right training, the right equipment. We are there to guide, advise, oversee. Now, when it's a special political mission, in the case of, um, I would say, Libya, for instance, that's mm -hmm. a political mission. Um, you don't have the boots on the ground. However, the mission, the SRSG, the Special Representative, advises the government in, uh, I would say, uh, the management of weapon, weaponry, ammunition, um, explosive stuff, the management of their demining uh, capacity, and we help, we help them build that capacity. But we also deploy on the ground to create a space, a safe space, for the rest of the UN to operate. So mm -hmm. in Libya, we have a foot as a uh, country team, in the country team, where we work with development agencies, with UNICEF, with OCHA, with OCHA Humanitarian Affairs, with the World Food Program, whosoever in any given country. We create that safe space. We train them, we educate them, we accompany them, and we have a political role in advising the mission. And then we are also purely humanitarian in contexts like, I would say, Iraq. Mm -hmm. Iraq, we were called to deploy because there was a humanitarian catastrophe related to mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the legacy of the conflict and what Daesh was leaving behind. And then we deploy as humanitarian. So mm -hmm. my political lines uh, are to really understand my mandates Mm -hmm. to really understand how I can, um, I would say, improve the UN ability to fulfill its mandate. And that's what we are here. I'm an enabler. 
and we support all these people. And I know I cannot cross lines. For uh, instance. I, I, I have to let you go, but I, before I do, is there anything that we should look out for uh, for your work in, in the near future in, in Unmass? Uh, yes, we, um, we are um, uh, actually taking the UN system um, uh, ahead in its reflection or in its response to um, what we call asymmetric uh, environment asymmetric threats that like IEDs. Mm-hmm. Huh? The 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 weaponry evolves. The terrorist groups are taking over. The threat is changing every day. And um, uh, for the area of work where we can help, we are taking this reflection to all parts of the UN that need to come together, reflect collectively, and devise a a way forward. What will be the UN response to such a multidimensional and complex uh, issue as the IEDs? We have devised a set of standards uh, on IEDs that will allow the UN to be more cost-effective and primarily um, uh, to reduce the number of casualties and fatalities um, for those who serve under the UN flag, whether civilian or whether uh, they are peacekeepers. We are moving forward with um, uh, gender. We, we really hold the torch. Uh, we are one of the uh, very successful entities when it comes to uh, the, the number of women working in a non-traditional area of work for women. We have women D-minors. 30% of my national staff are women. 64% at HQ and Geneva. We are oh, pushing wow. the humanitarian pillar. We are pushing gender. All of that is, is really accompanying the, the agenda of the Secretary General. I mean, uh, he, he, he has basically, um, uh, you know, put together in, in his vision um, something that, you know, I would say we all felt needed to be done. We need to cross the pillars. Anmas is uniquely positioned to bridge the humanitarian with the development and the peace and security pillar. We, we are not part of one given entity. We are serving the system. We are the United Nations service. So this is what I'm moving forward with, with my colleagues. And then I just hope you get the, uh, the funding that you, you need to do that as Syria, well. Syria, Syria, Syria. Uh, the humanitarian response in Syria uh, is uh, is forthcoming. I mean, we are progressing on this on all sides of Syria. We will need funding. This is a country that uh, that will be contaminated for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, but we need to kickstart the process, and that's going to be costly. But when you think 150, 180 million dollars a year, that sounds enormous. But then put together, you know, um, how many, uh, what is the cost of, I don't know, 20, 30 missiles that are shot at a, in a given conflict. It's, uh, um, the, the cost of the solution is big, but it's insignificant compared to the price of the war. And uh, we need also to understand uh, that stabilization cannot happen. Uh, without without the decontamination of the country. And we need to understand that 
getting that country back on track, having women get jobs, having the economy restart, it's all benefits from everybody. So I will continue to advocate and uh, get governments to understand better what we do and get the greater audience, the great public outside the UN, outside the bubble, mm -hmm. to understand that this is an issue that is not an issue of the past. It is today. Well, and that, that's where Daniel, uh, Daniel Craig comes in, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He helps me. Uh, he has lent his celebrity status to to our cause, and um, and we are very grateful to to Daniel Craig for doing this. Uh, he is a man who's very busy. He is about to start shooting his next Bond movie, and yet uh, his heart is at the right place, and he helps us, um, you know, every every time he can. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts and your insights and, and sort of explaining to my audience a little bit more detail the work of Unmass <laughs> and, and of, of the, the challenge of, of mine action around the world. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, uh, Kofi Annan, to, to take the uh, a former, former Secretary General, had said one day that Unmass was the one of the most precious resources of the UN um, uh, and needed to be better known. And uh, I thank you for uh, helping me uh, just bring that little office to the attention of my colleagues and, and the others. Thank you. S small but mighty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Passionate. 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 Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Anyas. That was really interesting, really helpful, and, and just a really good insight into how someone who can master the bureaucracy can make a really big change in, in world affairs. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, send me an email. Uh, you can do so via the Global Dispatches podcast.com email me form and daniel craig if you are listening to this you are easily my favorite james bond excluding sean connery all right see you next time bye the views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action